Hello, Jeroen. Hello, Dylan. And, uh, well, what are we talking about today? Today we're talking about debugging apps in Elm. Debugging makes, makes me think of rubber ducks. <laughs> Is it just me? Uh, no. I was wondering whether it was a pun on debugging in Elm. <laughs> Something. Well, ducks, ducks might eat bugs, but uh, I don't know their diets too well. But I do know that rubber ducking is an incredibly useful debugging technique. Yeah. I, I usually use a plush toy. Oh, that's good. But because I don't have rubber ducks, but I do have a few plushes, so. <laughs> that comes in handy. Yeah, like the nice thing with uh, plushes is that even when you can't figure the problem out with uh, the rubber duck, you can at least hug it and oh. then it makes you feel better. So. You can't go wrong. It's a win-win. Actually, yeah, exactly. I mean, a cat seems like it would be the ideal debugging partner. If it doesn't leave. If it doesn't walk away, that would just yeah. be sad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so basically, you don't need debugging in Elm because if you if you write it, it, it works as long as it compiles, right? Yeah. I mean, debugging means bugs, right? Yeah, it means bugs. So as long as you get it to compile. So we should really just talk about how to make an Elm application compile, I think. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, the, this is going to be a very short episode, so <laughs> we might as well not do it. And uh, so see you later, Dylan. <laughs> you know, I do think that there there is, um, uh, I don't know if it falls under the same category, but I do find that there's a certain art to being able to solve type puzzles in Elm almost like debugging why your types aren't lining up. Mm, and I'm yeah. not sure if like we should squeeze that into this episode or if it merits an episode of its own. It might, it might be a big enough topic to have its own episode. But that's, a, um, that's an interesting process in Elm as well. Totally, yeah. Well, let's start with the more vanilla standard debugging. So when, when I think about debugging, I, um, a word that comes to mind for me is assumptions. And when I say assumptions, what assumptions can I make? What assumptions am I making that might be preventing me from seeing what's going on? Like one of the most common things that happens to me when I'm banging my head against a wall debugging for a long time is I'm making an assumption and I'm not considering that area. You know, it's mm -hmm. like if, you, um, if you're looking for your keys and you like, looking like the first place you look you're like i always keep it in this drawer and you look there and you're like oh it's not there and then you go looking all throughout the house you pull up all the cushions on the couch you look all over the place and then you're like you know what i assumed that i was done looking in that drawer but did i fully search that drawer so you've created this assumption which has blinded you to one of the obvious things which is you you check that box, obviously it's not in that drawer. Then you go back and you look in the drawer after searching all over the house and there it is. You move over some stuff in your drawer and you see your keys. And that happens with debugging all the time. Like you, you're making that one assumption. So I think that being, um, just thinking about it as assumptions, I think is really helpful because you can then examine your assumptions and at least put them out there. And I think that's why rubber ducking is very helpful because like if, if a person or a rubber duck walks up to you and says, hey, what's going on? And you have to explain the problem to them, then it forces you to enumerate your assumptions. Because then you say, well, I know it's not in the drawer because I checked there. And you're like, wait a minute, but did I fully check there? So, you know, the equivalent in code would be, I know that this data is getting initialized correctly because I looked at that code and it gets initialized with the right state. Wait a minute, but does it get initialized in that right state for this code path? Yeah. 
Yeah, that makes me think of the confirmation bias. Yes. There's a video by Veritasium on YouTube, which uh, I found to be pretty compelling, where he, he basically uh, goes to people on the street and asks, I, I have a rule, I'm going to give you three numbers, uh, and you need to find the rule. So um, my uh, here are my numbers, one, two, four, try to guess the rule. And people say, well, you double it every time. And that is not the rule. But you can now guess um, other numbers, and I will tell you whether they match the rule. And uh, you can then try to find other rules to see whether they're matching. And what seems to happen a lot is that people try to confirm what they were uh, assuming before. So one, two, four. So you're doubling uh, the numbers every time. No, that's not the rule. Okay, Uh, two, four, eight. Yes, that fits the rule, but that is not doubling the number. 16, 32, 64. You're you're trying again and again to validate your initial assumption. Yes. But that is not what you should do. And what you should do is try to ponder, is my assumption correct by saying the opposite or something else? So does one, two, three fit? And in this case, yes, yes, it did. Uh Uh-huh. Which is not doubling the number. Yeah, that's a great example. I I love that idea of uh, instead of trying to confirm your assumptions, trying to completely (laughs) deviate from your assumptions. And I mean, that that sort of, um, I remember the first ever computer science lecture in my first ever computer science class and it it, I like I will I will never forget it and my my teacher said all right here's here's a setup you're trying to find the um you know you're trying to guess a number between Mm -hmm. one and a hundred and you have however many guesses and you guess a number and I'll tell you if you're too high too low or guessed correctly so what's your first guess and then he was having someone in the audience like make guesses and this one student was like 17, tw- 23. He, j- he just like <laughs> wanted to get the right number. And he was explaining like, well, what happens if you guess 17 and I say that's it's too higher. low? What do yeah. you now know? And what what information does that illuminate and eliminate? And and so what would be what would be the answer that would give you the most information? And, you know, as as people who've learned about binary searching, get bisect. You do, you do a bisect, you try to eliminate as much information, so you split it in the middle. That gives you the most information in that situation. And, and that is a very real thing that happens in debugging is like, what if you poke at something, what will tell you the most information? That is a really important skill. Yeah. When you said it before about trying to make the compiler work or the to fix the compilers, I kind of do that same technique with um, trying to figure where there's a compiler error. So if I have a list and one of them is of a different type, but I can't seem to figure out which one because I'm not looking at the type error sufficiently or because it's not it's not clear, I tend to remove half of them and see whether problematic ones were in those uh, in, in that half. Mm-hmm. And then yes. do, do a bisect in that way. So, okay. Okay. So we're getting into it. So here, here we go. Let's, here, let's do it. <laughs> okay. So debugging compiler errors, debugging types that don't line up. Some of the things that I really like to, to use for, for figuring out how to solve a type puzzle are debug.todo is a very useful tool. So we're talking about debug to do before debug log. Okay. <laughs> sure. <laughs> debug.todo is... You know, I mean, it's the equivalent of like the TypeScript any type, except that you can't get it into production code because you can't do lmake dash dash optimize with debug.todos. 
So the thing is, it is an extremely helpful tool for testing assumptions. And the basic idea is you take a, um, you're using it to ask a question. You're saying, you can say, would any type satisfy the compiler here? Mm -hmm. And what that allows you to do is that sort of binary searching that you're talking about where you just say like, ignore all of this other stuff. But if I did, you know, pipe this to list.map, this function, maybe dot with default, this value, et cetera, et cetera. If I started with a debug dot to do in this one point, would everything else line up? Is there is there a possible path where that would line up? Or in other words, if it doesn't, yes. that, that tells you that the compiler problem or the type problem yes. is later down the line. Exactly, exactly. You've uh, bisected it into, into two categories. Uh, the problem either exists within the debug dot, the thing you've you've replaced with a debug dot to do, there was a fault there, or everything that comes after is inconsistent. Because if you um, if you put a debug dot to do in the thing that starts a pipeline that goes through list.map some function, maybe dot with default, then you know, okay, whether or not I get the value I'm looking for in the spot I have the debug dot to do, everything else is not consistent because there's no value that would satisfy the compiler as that starting point. But if it compiles, then you know, okay, I know that there exists a value that would satisfy the compiler here. So the, the remaining code appears to be consistent at least. So what kind of value could I put here? And at that point, I really like to use um, a let with a type annotation and just extract things. I wrote a blog post about this that I sent out on my mailing list, but I, I should really publish it um, on my public facing blog. I've been publishing them both on my public blog and to my mailing list lately, but my earlier ones, I didn't. Maybe I'll go dig that up and publish it. But um, but I wrote about a technique that I called frame then fill in, kind of like basically talking about this technique of like, if you're solving a puzzle, you start with the easy things that you can figure out. So you start with around the puzzle. If you can find the edge pieces and the corner piece, there are four corner pieces. So if you can find the four corner pieces, now you have some easy assumptions that you can start with, and then you can start fitting things into that. But using like a, an annotated let binding, and for people who may not know, you can, you can create um, a let you know, variable in Elm, and you can put a type annotation above it, just like in a top-level value. Which you should do, in my opinion. But. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think yeah. a lot of people just don't realize that you can do that. Yeah, I noticed that too as well. And uh, if you're using IntelliJ Elm, it can often help you out with, you just hit like option enter and say add type annotation. And often it gives you a pretty helpful annotation there. Yeah, it, it works generally. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty good. So that's a really helpful technique. Also, I think people may not know, I, I it took me a while to, to discover this, that the, um, the type variables you have in your top level type annotation so if mm -hmm. you have something that says this is a list of a, yeah, if you Capital use a, a lowercase a, okay, lowercase a. Mm -hmm. If you say this top level value, my list is a list of a, and then you do a let binding and you annotate something as a lowercase a, that is now the same a as the type level, the top level annotation had. So it's sort of bound in that same context. So that that can come, come in handy. But so frame frame then fill in. Basically, the idea is you keep locking in these things that you know 
with type information. You put like a type annotation. You're like, okay, I know this needs to be this type. This is consistent. If I do this, I put a debug.todo here and things line up and they're consistent. Now I just need to get a value of this type. And then you start extracting sub problems and saying, well, if I had a value of this type and a value of this type and a function with this annotation, wouldn't that be helpful? Write those annotations with debug.todos. And then you start to fill in those sub problems. So it's almost like taking a puzzle, getting the corner pieces, but then you like get a sub puzzle out of that and you can get new corner pieces by getting those new sort of core assumptions that you need to work towards. Yeah. Debug to do is a really easy way to do hard code values, right? Because mm -hmm. if you say this yes. function just needs to, re you know, takes two arguments and returns a string, you can just say uh, return uh you can just say that this function returns an empty string. But the debug to do will at least give you one, a reminder to remove it. Mm -hmm. And yeah, two, it works for more complex values because strings are easy to create. But if you need to create a user, some, which could be impossible to create because of opaque types or uh, stuff like that, debug to do is really helpful in that matter. That's a very good point. Also, like, so yeah, that's a good distinction between like debug.todo and hard coding values because they can play a similar role and serve a similar function. But one thing that um, hard coding can never do is say, I don't know what the type is here, but is there any type that would be consistent and, you know, work for all these things? So if you do like, if you call like string dot two upper on something, and then you call like times two on something, you can put debug dot to do as the value you're applying those transformations to, and it's not internally consistent because there, there are no values that can both be uppercased as a string and multiplied by two. So it's not consistent. But debug.todo can answer the question, are there any values where these things are consistent? So if you don't know what the type is going to be, debug.todo can be helpful. If you do know what the type is going to be, then sometimes hard coding is the way to go. But as you say, it doesn't necessarily give you a reminder to remove it. So, so sometimes it is helpful to like have kind of standard nonsense names that you use. Yeah, yeah. So you can find them. In fact, you could use um, you could use Elm Review to oh. to find your standard nonsense terms of choice in your in your code base. Yep, you can totally create a rule that says, "Hey, any function named replace me underscore one two three. I often call things like thingy, I'll call it thingy or something. And um, I tend to go with foobar. I know that's people, good too. Yeah. yeah. Some people don't like it, but for me, at least it's a reminder that I need to rename it anyway. I, th I think it's very valuable to have like some go-to terms that you can quickly scan and be like, oh, I'm not done with this. I need to come back and fix something. We, we, we did a workshop together uh, with the mm -hmm. Falco yes. and someone else. And uh, we chose the name nonsense for as a nonsense name. Yeah, that it's a good nice. nonsense name. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but the uh, one thing, one thing to keep in mind is that with hard code values, you can at least run your application. If you have a debug to do, Ex it, it will crash. Exactly, Ex exactly. And that's actually why I I actually tend to prefer hard coded values when possible to debug to do's. I um, as a rule of thumb. I, I like to have debug.todos be extremely short-lived to just help me answer those questions and binary search my compiler errors. 
but then as quickly as possible, I want to replace it with hard coded or real values. So, um, so like one example of using like a hard coded value, this is a debugging technique that I find really helpful. Sometimes, um, like, uh, like recently I, I was, um, debugging something where there was like, a I, I was tracing the problem back. There was like, I mean, it was pretty obvious that there was like a, a dictionary lookup that was amiss. It was not getting a value back in the, so, you know, that was pretty easy to tell because it's like, couldn't find this thing. You look at the page and that's what you see, right? At least that was your assumption. Well, that's true. That's true. But that did seem like a pretty safe assumption that like it didn't find this thing and you trace it back here and it's like it gets that value from a dictionary lookup. So then you test that assumption, right? And at that point, I actually draw a lot. Uh, it, it's it's all, all actually kind of hard for me to separate my... Um, my test-driven development sort of toolkit and, and ideas from my debugging toolkit, because really there's so much overlap, it's almost like the same process for me. But one of the things I'm trying to do is to get feedback as quickly as possible. And hard coding is a very useful technique there, right? So like with test-driven development, um, we talked about this in our test-driven development episode, you can um, fake it till you make it. You pass in a hard-coded value and you get you get the test green in the quickest, dirtiest way you, you know how. Um, and then you go and remove the hard coding. Well, similarly, like you've got this bug, you've got a, your assumption is a dictionary lookup is failing. You can test that assumption by, uh, like for a specific case, try to, try to initialize that dictionary with those specific values. Or actually, if you want to like, if you want to increase your odds of success, start closer to the actual point of failure because you don't know what transformation something has gone through. So you basically want to get feedback about your assumption as quickly as possible. If you, if you say at the end on this screen, a value is missing, I know that. Therefore, it must not be getting retrieved from this dictionary. That's like another assumption. Therefore, it must not be getting inserted into this dictionary. You actually don't know that that's like a bigger leap because what happens to that dictionary through the course of its lifetime? It gets initialized. Does something get removed at some point? Does the dictionary get swapped out in your model where there's an update and the, the value gets replaced or reinitialized? You don't know. So you want to test your assumption and get that feedback as soon as possible. That's your, your first goal. Yeah. What I would do here is to replace it dict.get or dict.member. Yeah. Cool by a just mm-hmm. value that uh, makes sense right. and see if I rec- if I can reproduce the the error that's a great that's a great one yes right that would be a great way to test yeah, because that assumption if, if you if you do that and it you still reproduce the error then this is not the problem if it is then at least your assumption is uh, kind of validated yes right and and just to just to emphasize this is not um code that's going to get committed. This is temporary code to test your assumption. So yeah, I, I think that's a great first step. You put a just value instead of the value coming from the dictionary lookup. Does the thing you want show up on the screen? Yes. Okay, good. Then wind it back a step further. Instead, revert that thing that's taking the dictionary lookup value and putting a hard-coded just value. And instead, put a hard-coded dictionary. So what if I had a hard-coded dictionary and it had this value with this key? Would, would it be able to look that up? And if, if the answer is yes, it, uh, it was able to look that up and get the correct value, then 
And again, if you were using debug.todos here, it would tell you if the types work, but it wouldn't allow you to execute it and get that feedback, which is important. It also wouldn't allow you to run your tests, which is also important. So, uh, but then you work backwards from there and you, you um, and then finally, like, uh, okay, well, at the point where the dictionary is initialized, what if I, instead of that hard-coded dictionary I had right at the point of failure when it, where it does the dictionary lookup, what if I use that hard-coded dictionary when I initialize the dictionary? Now, you know, if, my, uh, if, if, if your code now works, you've now shown that the problem is in the initialization of the dictionary. So if you fix the dictionary initialization, your code will work. So now you've narrowed down exactly where the problem is. You may have created new issues by doing that, but uh, that's a different issue. But yeah. at least you have tests for that, right? Well, yeah, exactly. And tests are... Yeah, tests are important. Like if I, when I'm working through a bug, I can't emphasize how much like, I essentially, like I've got my full dopamine hit for fixing that issue when I get my failing test case. If I reproduce it in a failing unit test, then I've got my dopamine ready to go. Uh, I understand that. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> because that's the hard part. If you've got that, now you can iterate and test things very rapidly. And sure, it might still be a tricky problem, but that tests are not a, you know, a magic bullet. The way that you're writing your tests matters a lot. And if you've, you know, you not all tests are created equal. You might have a test that really like is exercising a unit that's not like a clear, well-defined unit. And at that point, so it really... Um, you mean if it's integrating multiple pieces? Yes. If it's sort of like an integration test, and then, then it becomes really difficult to like find the precise failure that you're dealing with and fix that cleanly and get that feedback. Because you're not getting this like very precise feedback about where a problem is happening. So, but good, a good unit test suite and getting that, reproducing that failure in a test is incredible. For, for all the reasons that we described to about testing, like if the problem ever arises again, then your test will fail. Right. And yeah, as you said, you get a dopamine rush when you <laughs> write the test because now you have something that says red, this right. is not working, which is kind of what you're expecting. And when you fix it, you get a big green, which is the dopamine yes. rush of now it's working as expected. Yes. And I mean, I think that's why I, I can't separate in my mind my like debugging toolkit from my test-driven development toolkit because really it's all about feedback. So like mm -hmm. what we're talking about with like this technique of hard coding with, with putting a just for the dictionary lookup value just to be like, does this do the right thing, right? It's the same as like writing a failing test and getting it green as quick and dirty as you can. Um, the reason you do that is just to, to, to get that feedback so that you're not wasting time building on top of faulty assumptions. So it's all about feedback. The better your feedback loops are, the, the more quickly you will be able to test your assumptions. And debugging is all about testing assumptions. So let's go back to the dict uh, problem that we had before. Would you really start with um, inlining just something? Or would you test your assumption by adding a debug log to start with? That's what I tend to do just just yeah. Maybe because I'm too much of a rookie or something, but I, I do uh, use debug log a lot. That's uh, that's a really interesting question. I I use debug a lot as well. I think um, I don't think that there's anything inherently better or worse about 
the technique of hard coding values to get feedback versus debugging. I think, um, I mean, really it's, they're both forms of feedback. Um, yeah. And mm-hmm. sometimes a debug log, you know, some, sometimes if there's like an intermediary value and you want to figure out, like, I think I would tend to, um, I think I would tend to start with just, well, if you have no idea what's going on and it could be coming from a lot of places, then yeah, I mean, pulling up, like doing a debug.log or pulling up the Elm debugger, like that's a great place to start because the cost of doing that is so low. So you can just be like, this thing isn't showing up on the screen. Why? Well, what does the model look like? And what do I expect it to look like? And, and you know, maybe like if I have a known point of code before, if I get stash or go back to a previous commit, what did it look like then? Th- those are really interesting questions. And I don't think that there's inherently like a, a better option between those two. I think they're both great ways to get feedback. Yeah, I think debug log is much easier to set up because like if, if, if we take the example of the dictionary again, it is much easier to inspect whether the dictionary was empty or whether you got something from it right? Uh, rather than constructing a value which might be very complex or impossible yeah. to create. Yes, that's right. I, I, I think that's a good way to put it. And I mean, there is a, a real advantage to like the hard coding in that you can actually prove that it works by seeing it working. You can actually say like, I had this value here, it would work. So that's extremely valuable to just know that, I mean, basically it's like, it's all about choosing where to spend your time. And if you can, um, there was, um, uh, Joelle had a, an article on the ThoughtBot, ThoughtBot blog recently about classical reasoning and debugging. It's a really nice post. And, and he talks about this analogy of looking at debugging as pruning a tree. I think that's a really nice way to look at it. it you're basically, um, you know, because of the nature of trees, the number of paths, you know, grows exponentially. And so if you can cut off one of those branches and stop examining it, prune that tree, then the gains are huge. So that's really your goal. And um, if you can um, if you can debug.log, it helps you figure out which branches to examine or where to focus your efforts. If you can put a hard-coded value and prove that it works if I do this thing, because I can actually run it and see it working with this hard-coded thing. Now you've actually pruned a branch. So I would say that those are, just be aware of the, the purpose that those two different techniques serve. Yeah, kind of like with the guess a number from 1 to 100. Like if you yeah. say just 23, and that happens to be the right number, uh-huh. great. <laughs> but if it isn't, then yeah. good luck. Right. And Try a, again. And a debug.log can definitely help give you a clue. Because at a certain point, I mean, kind of like your Veritasium example, like you want, you, you need to get your bearings of like, where do I even start looking? And uh, just printing out a bunch of information or inspecting the model is a good place to sort of pick where to start. If you need to pick where to start, then just sort of like looking at a bunch of information and seeing if you notice anything interesting uh, can sort of get your brain thinking a certain direction. Now, it may also um, get you thinking with some tunnel vision and getting some confirmation bias. So, you, you you know, that's why you want to validate your assumptions once you sort of get a place to start and make sure you um, are explicit about your assumptions, lay them out, tell a rubber duck or a plush toy about them or a cat. <laughs> Taking a walk. Okay, let's talk about breaks because that's that's a really good one. I think breaks are uh, 
definitely underrated as a debugging technique. Uh, And walking in particular is really good for like getting your mind off of like just grinding on a problem, which if you are, um, if you are grinding on a problem, then be aware that you, you won't want to tear yourself away from the code because you're like, I want to fix the problem. Your brain is in that mode. And often that's exactly the time when you should get away from the code, get away from the keyboard and take a break because you're going further down that tunnel vision where you're like, I just want to see this thing through. You're burning yourself out and just step away from the keyboard for a little bit. I'm thinking of cases where I would want to to move away from it because it is very complex. And like especially if you're dealing with um, a lot of mutating code where things happen and in, uh, impact other code and you have to create a, a mental model of everything, which is very complex, then you you want to keep um, in that state, but that also probably means that you have a problem that your your system is too complex. Not that you need to resolve it now. You you don't have you haven't created a small enough system in which to reason about. So we we often talk about SSCCEs in Elm, yeah, mm-hmm. which ah, what what does it mean again? Sure, isn't there like a website that you can point people to? Yeah, yeah, sscce.org short self-contained correct example yeah D- did you also learn that word from elm yes okay um so if you can create a a smaller example maybe not minimal yeah, but absolutely at least small and well that makes it much easier to know where the problem is exactly and often by doing this you have found where the problem is because you you are kind of pruning that tree while saying oh well this information that actually doesn't impact the, this code doesn't impact the results. I'm still getting that bug. Oh, but when I change this, then bug is resolved. So this is part of the problem. Right, right. So yeah, absolutely. Because it's really, I mean, again, I keep coming back to it because I think this is just like such a fundamental thing about programming that it it applies universally, but it's about feedback. And um, when you reduce down the problem to a simplified version of the problem, it allows you to, you're reducing the variables. And that means when you get feedback, it there's less noise to that feedback. So you're getting better, faster feedback. I'm thinking if you manage to resolve it to uh, SSCC, you fix it, and then you still have the problem, then you have actually found two bugs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Joel also talks about, he, he refers to this as reasoning by analogy in his blog post here, which is, um, I like the, the way that he breaks down, um, you know, these different reasoning techniques and how they apply in the context of coding. And so with like debug logging and using like the interactive Elm debugger, like, are there any specific techniques that, that you find helpful there? Not specifically. I, I would, I tend to try to pinpoint where I need to put my debug log and try to get the most precise information because otherwise i get that big blog of text uh, like if i want to know what whether a dict get is a hit or a miss i debug log that instead of the the key and the dict but when i know that i actually need to look at those then i do uh, debug log on both and uh, actually when you have a big debug log blob of text uh, there's one uh, extension that is very useful that was made by um, 
Thomas Latal, also known as Cracklin, which I probably pronounced better, um, which is a, an extension that you can add to basically any browser, uh, which when you turn it on, you can have a nicer view of the debug log, like an actually interactive, uh, where you can open a record to see the, uh, the fields in it. So you can open a list to see the elements in it and so on. Yeah, it feels a lot like if you if you do like console log of a JavaScript object yeah, yeah, in exactly. the browser and you can kind of inspect and expand pieces of it. With, 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 but nicer with colors. Uh, so instead of a big block of text, that is very useful. I actually, I'm a bit sad because most of the debugging I do, I feel like I do it in Elm review. So it's done with Elm uh -huh. tests and uh -huh. I can't use this. <laughs> this is so annoying. You actually probably could if you use node-inspect. Yeah. So with node-inspect, you can actually execute because, you know, Elm review is running in a node runtime, not like a, a Chrome browser runtime. I was actually thinking with Elm test, but yeah, otherwise, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. With Elm test, true. Yeah. It's not going to give you, it's not going to give you that. I mean, unless you <laughs> pulled down the Elm test runner code and did node inspect with that. But yeah, that, but, but that, yeah do give me the information. I'm still interested. <laughs> it can be helpful. Like if you do node dash dash inspect and you're running your, you know, node program, which happens to execute some Elm code, then you can, you get your, you know, console log messages in a Chrome or whatever window. And um, you just, you just like connect to this node session and, and you can like, analyze the memory and see everything's yeah. going on as if it were running in Chrome. That's quite handy. So for, for debug logging, there are a lot of different techniques that I find myself using. Like one technique I one technique I use often is just oh and I wanted to mention one other thing which is um Matthew Pitzenberg's I don't know how to pronounce his name properly. You can pronounce it better. But. Mathieu Pitzenberg. There you go. That's what I meant to say. Probably. <laughs> I mean, French names can always be pronounced in a different way, oh, especially, okay. especially okay. last names. So Interesting. But, but well, then I, then I don't feel too bad. Um, but uh, <laughs> yeah, he, um, he has this uh, Elm test RS tool. It's like a Rust test driver for Elm unit tests, which is just, you know, drop in replacement for the Elm test CLI. And one of the, one of the main features that he has for that is that he like captures the debug log output for specific tests. So a technique that I use quite often is I will use debug.logging in tandem with Elm test. And um, because that's a really great fast feedback mechanism, I don't need to like run through the steps in the browser and then try to reproduce the case and make sure I'm reproducing it the same way every time and context shift between reproducing and adding log statements, right? But uh, so that's pretty cool. In, in Elm test RS, it captures the log output and associates it with an individual test case. I do have to say, though, in practice, what I tend to do anyway is I tend to add an only yeah, to yeah. run <laughs> a specific test anyway. Yeah, because you, you would still have a lot of uh, debug logs for all the other tests. That's right. I'm exactly. Even though you're associating the log output with a specific test run instead of just printing the logs with it without a specific uh, ordering. It's still a lot of noise and it's nice to reduce down the noise in a lot of cases and say like, I, I know I'm reproducing the issue here. Give me log output to help me understand what's going on. Yeah. I, I tend to use test.only 
also quite a lot. Yeah, only is very helpful, and you can you can use only on a specific test case or on a um, on a describe. I tend to just use it on a specific test case in practice most of the time, a- at least when I'm debugging. Yeah, yeah to- totally. I tend to do it on describe sometimes when I'm working on stuff. Right. But then when I add it to the to a single test underneath it, there's an issue where it still runs the whole describe. Right. Yeah. I mean, if you have multiple onlys, it doesn't know which only you want. So I think it does well, them all. Like if you do an only inside of a describe only. Yeah, that's true. Uh, then I would argue you need yeah. to only run that test, but that's, no, it doesn't. That's reasonable. Yeah, yeah. That, that's reasonable. So an, another uh, logging technique that I like to use is um, I'll, I'll run an only with a specific test case. And uh, again, like one of the one of the most useful tips is just try to get your red failing unit test. If you can do that, you're in really good shape. But uh, I also like to, um, <coughs> often I will just put like a, a debug log. So you can do, um, you can do underscore in a let binding, you can do underscore equals debug dot log. Yeah. And that's important because Elm will not evaluate the debug log statement. If you just say foo equals debug dot log string one, two, three. So you need to do it as underscore, and then it will evaluate that whether or not it needs it for any of the other values. Uh, just as, as a side note, mm-hmm. if you do not see your uh, debug log, yeah, don't forget to add two arguments. That's another yes. <laughs> the description yes. Uh, between um, between quotes, and then the value that you're trying to to show. And if you're not showing, mm-hmm. not trying to show anything, just trying to see whether the code passed through this path, then add a unit or something. Yes, exactly. That would be an interesting Elm review rule. I don't know if there is one for that, but there isn't. Yeah, that would be. Uh, I mean, it's, it's already people. Yeah, it's already reporting that hey, you should not use debug log. So I don't think people will actually yeah, look at fair. it. That's fair. Right. That's a good point. But yeah, so if you, uh, so I sometimes find myself trying to understand which code path it's taking, like in a case statement or uh, an if if expression or whatever, right? So. So what I what what I'll often do there is I'll put you know an underscore equals debug.log, like a little let in each branch of the if or case expression. And then I'll just put, you know, one, two, three for each of the log statements. And then I know which branch it's going down. Yeah, don't forget to always give a yeah. reasonable description to know that to, to make it easy to find uh the debug log again. So, yeah, oh, yeah. I found debug log two. Oh, wait, where did I put that one? Uh-huh, uh-huh. So yeah. we usually do something like before yeah. this function call and after this function call, something like that. Or one, two, three, four. That's less important if you are running it with a reproducible unit test. Because if you're like, where is this log coming from? Then you find all the places you're logging that and change one of them. Whereas if you're like, if this is a very hard to reproduce bug, and you ha- and you can only reproduce it one out of ten times because you don't know exactly what you did clicking through these steps to reproduce it. Then you want to be really sure that you can get all the logging information in that one spot. Yeah, but yeah. Try to, try to understand through which path the the code is going through. Yeah, exactly. That's that's another kind of pruning strategy to to help you identify which branches you can stop examining and which ones you can focus your efforts on. So how often do you use the Elm browser debugger? So the the one that comes um, built in with the with Elm, it looks almost, but it's actually part of the Elm browser. 
and that it appears um, in the bottom left, uh, bottom right corner. Yeah, I use it. I actually use it fairly often to just um, inspect what's going on with the model. I don't, and I mean, it, it's use. It's interesting to see like which messages are coming in and then which. But often it's enough for me to just know like what is the current state or like or to toggle. Um, actually, I find myself pretty often like clicking back. So if you like expand a particular part of your model, you can like expand and collapse portions of it. It retains that if you click between states that this message came in, this message came in, you can click back and forth between those states. So it can be really helpful to like toggle between them and see what changed if you expand the portion that you're interested in examining. So you can see exactly how it changed in a particular step. So often that's like easier than a debug.log. Yeah, and then when you combine it with uh, some debug logs, you can know why it changed the way it did. Right, and then you can like find the specific message that triggered it. And that that's another, um, so I, I was kind of thinking about like what is unique about debugging in Elm? I think that's like, I think that's an interesting topic to talk about, you know, not just for telling someone why Elm is interesting, but if you're using Elm, how do you make the most of these cool properties in Elm to, you know, to do, to, to debug more effectively? And um, so one of those ways that Elm is really unique is that you have this pinch point of changing your model and, you know, initiating side effects. And that's update and, and init. I think of them almost as like the same thing, but you've got, uh, you've, you've got these messages that you can examine. And that's really cool because you can um, you can look through and say, is this message getting triggered at the right time, or what happens when this message is happening? And and another unique thing about Elm that you can take advantage of when you're debugging is types. So if you can if you can look at in the update you know clause for this message, it's not triggering any side effects and it's running this function which only could possibly change these values. That helps you prune the tree and, and narrow down your search space even more. Yeah, and also reduce the mental model that you need to keep in your head. Mm-hmm. Yes, right. Yeah, we, we talked about that in our sort of book club about uh, scaling Elm applications, Richard Feldman's talk. And uh, uh, I think that's a, really, that's a really important point is like understanding how you can narrow down your search space through Elm types. Also, like, I think parse don't validate is very relevant here too. Like if you, if you are passing a maybe down all over the place, you have to constantly be asking yourself, is this a just or nothing? And that's more cognitive load for you to understand. That's more code paths for you to consider. So parse don't validate allows you and refer back to our parse don't validate episode. It's one of my favorite episodes, actually. That allows you to, to narrow down information and basically track your assumptions through types. That's that's kind of how I think of what parse don't validate allows you to do. So instead of passing down a maybe all over the place, you want to um, you want to have that value that keeps track of the fact that actually if it goes down this code path, it won't be nothing. You have a value. And it will reduce the code. Yes. The, the amount of code anyway. So it will look nicer. Yeah. Win win. Yeah. Right. Yeah, uh, using types, running tests, doing tiny steps also I think is really useful. Just like all those techniques to not have bugs in the first place. Or yeah, the, the, the less bugs you have to start with, the less debugging you have to do. So invest in your future, you know. 
Right. And, and again, coming back to the analogy of the uh, pruning the tree, thanks again to Joel for a really good analogy. Uh, that is, you know, uh, types help you prune the tree and, uh, oh, tiny steps help you prune the tree. So if you're taking tiny steps, your search space is smaller because, you know, it, it, so, I mean, there are a few different cases to consider here, right? There's like debugging something that you just introduced, and then there's debugging something that a user found in production, right? And but if you're debugging something that you just introduced, which you know we're all, we're constantly debugging in that regard, right? You you introduce a change, you're like, why is this not working? If you're taking tiny steps, your search space is a lot smaller. And also, if you want to figure out a compiler error, stash your code and do the same change in a tiny step makes the compiler error much easier to read and to understand and to fix. So. Um, Back to the Elm debugger, I tend not to use it a lot. One reason being is that a lot of um, the debugging I do is for Elm review. So I don't have access to it. But even in my work application, we don't use it because we have a lot of events going through all the time because we, we're showing um, graphs and analytics. And so we have constant messages coming in. And that makes it very hard to fi to to find which step uh, failed and just trying to make it uh, the rolling of messages stop. So one thing I, I could see us doing, but we haven't done yet, is to make it easier for us to use the debugger by not triggering some events, mostly subscriptions. Like uh, if you have something, uh, if you have a time that every subscription that rolls every frame, for instance, you will get a lot of messages and the debugger will be... Unusable. Yeah, unusable. And it creates performance problems because it's keeping track of all of that state in memory and explodes, yeah. But if you somehow remove those, like if you remove this subscription, the code might not work as well, but maybe that's not important for this particular use case or this particular debugging session. So you could use, you could do yourself a favor by removing it, either by removing it from the code or by running the, the code with a certain configuration or adding a shortcut that disables that fetching of the, of the time. And by doing that, you will have a lot of, a lot less noise. And similarly, we, what we do do is, um, that sounded bad, but what we do do, but is not a doo-doo, uh, is actually kind of invest in our dev tools. So in our, all of our pages, we have what we call a dev panel, which we open up with a sh shortcut. And then it, it gives us buttons to put the, the application in a certain state. So if you have a list of items that we're showing, like a, for us, it's a dashboard list, because we, we, we can have several. So what would the the page look like if you had a hundred or a thousand? Would it slow down? Would it still look okay? Would the CSS be okay? So we just have a button that says add 100 dashboards or empty the dashboards or uh, mock a request failure so that you can see the, the error page, the error state. And when you do all those things, it becomes much easier to, to test your, your application in very specific scenarios, even just visually, if it's uh, only even if it's only for CSS or styling, being able to easily put your application into the state where it shows whatever you need to style is very useful. It's very time saving. That's great. That's a yeah, great. Yeah. So that's something that you need to add to your application. 
Right. Invest in building your own yeah. tools. Yeah, I think that if you have, I, I, I always think about like, what is the sort of macroscopic effect of, of improving feedback mechanisms? I, I think that um, you see the quality and level of like innovation around a particular area directly affected by by those types of things. So that's really cool. I think I, I think if you want to like if you want to make something really good, invest I mean it's like, you know, um they have like Chaos Monkey and those things at Netflix, right? So they'll just uh reproduce an an outage in an AWS region or whatever it might be. And you know, by having those feedback mechanisms it it makes it more resilient and robust because, you know, instead of dealing with those issues when they happen to happen, which is rare, they can trigger them at any time and they, they have to build in that resilience to it. So I, I think that design tools that, that bring, bring that feedback out so that you're responding to it instead of, otherwise it's just gonna, um, it's not gonna be front of mind. Yeah, it, it makes me think of fuss, uh, fuss tests. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, you, you're not gonna test when that integer is minus one. But right. having right. fast tests will force you to do, to do yes. it. Yes, yes. And it doesn't have the same biases that you have unless you encode your biases subconsciously, which you probably will to some extent. But yeah, <laughs> it, 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 it does have some biases, some very weird ones like sometimes, oh, yeah, negative numbers. I, I like those. Oh, sure. Well, that's, yeah, yeah, that's by, by design, right? Like it, it, it knows that there is a certain meaning to like an empty list and a list with one item. It's like, those are, let's not be random about those because those specific areas might be, uh, let's like be more likely to produce those random values or let's always produce them. I don't know which it is, but fuzz testing is another interesting one that can um, sort of get you out of your cognitive biases. That's another good good tip for debugging. There, there are almost like two different modes for debugging. There's like the exploration phase and the fixing phase or or like narrowing down phase. So like one is expanding when you're exploring like what is going on, what might be causing it. You're trying to expand your options and where to look. And one is narrowing within that. Which we've talked about mostly. Yeah. Sometimes people talk about like exploratory testing, which is a type of manual testing. I, I, I'm not an expert about it. I don't, I don't know very much about it, but I, I think the general idea is to sort of overcome those biases by sort of poking at a system instead of saying, here's our test plan. This is what we test every time we do a release. It's more, um, how can we overcome our cognitive biases and explore things that might not be a code path that we've examined before? Okay. I've never, never seen it in action or act I'm not sure what it is. I haven't read a lot about it. And I, I haven't haven't practiced it myself, but I um, I know a lot of sort of uh, automated testing advocates often talk about you know ideally almost all of your testing should be automated, but there's this thing called exploratory testing, which is really helpful because basically like you're automating the known knowns, not the unknown unknowns, something like that, right? So you, it's to try to flesh those things out, which your automated tests aren't necessarily going to do a good job doing. Although fuzz tests are perhaps an interesting exception. Is exploratory, is exploratory testing kind of a way to figure where to add tests? Where to add automated tests, I mean? I'm sure, I'm sure you can... Let's see, how to do exploratory testing. 
Categorize common types of faults found in past projects. Analyze the root cause. Find the risk to develop. Yeah, there's a whole there's a whole uh, area here that I, I need to dig into more. But um, but there could be some interesting concepts to glean there from uh, how to put on the right the right lens when you're looking at debugging. I'll drop a link in case people want to read about it more. Yeah. All right. Anything else you want to add? I uh, I didn't bring up my uh, my mantra of wrap early unwrap late. I think that's another good one to mention here. You know, if you can uh, deal with, you know, deal with possible failures at the periphery. I mean, Elm bakes in some of those things with like decoders, you know, sort of finding out about issues um, when you, you know, when you get the payload rather than when you use the data. But I think that that's another really good practice is, you know, you want to enforce contracts as soon as possible. You want to use types to represent those. You want to wrap it in a meaningful type as quickly as possible and and retain it as that ideal representation of the data as long as possible until you need to get some, you know, built-in data type that you need to pass as JSON. You don't want to turn, you know, serialize it prematurely because that makes it harder to debug and understand what's going on. Basically any technique that we covered during these other 29 episodes are probably worth looking into. Yeah. Is there anything else that makes Elm unique for debugging? I guess we, we didn't talk about like pure functions, but that's pretty, pretty huge. Yeah. Just just the fact that you don't have any spooky action at a distance, as we've mentioned before. One that sets Elm apart from the others is that there is no debugger between quotes. The step debugger? Yeah, step-by-step mm-hmm. debugger. Maybe there right. will at some point, but there is another moment. I've heard people mention that they they think that would be useful, which I can I can sort of see. Yeah, b- right. because it's like putting a debug log on the fly, right? Right. Yes. Right. If you'd put a debug log, you need to know where you want to extract information, um, but you can sort of explore freely if you have a stepwise debugger and find something you weren't necessarily looking for. And now that said, uh, I think that I think that you and I would both agree, like we would be happier to debug in Elm than in any other language. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, no so question here. we got it pretty good there. Like even just the fact that there nothing happens without a message is wonderful. Like you don't get a message, it will not change. You get a message, it might change, and you know exactly how it has changed. So yeah, that th- that is in a way a step by step debugger. The Elm browser one. Not in the same right. It's a different level of granularity of step, but it is steps. Yeah, and yeah, I I guess in a way that's like a big bisect already. You can already say, yeah, absolutely. It's only the the problem is happening between this step and this step, and that reduces a lot of the craft already. Right, right, and and you know, to you want to take advantage of of the unique characteristics of your application and your programming language to, you know, to prune that tree, right? So uh, that's that's why I think it's worth thinking about this question of what's unique about debugging in Elm, because that helps you make assumptions safely. And so you should, um, you know, you should double down on on using that to, to step, like, that's going to make you more effective at debugging your Elm code. If you're thinking about, okay, what what do I know? Because this is Elm code, is there a message I can look for to like? It's a problem with state. Okay, well then, what are the what are the relevant messages? Right, you can start with that because 
that's an assumption you can make because of Elm, not because of your domain or the way you've structured your code, which is really cool. And then with types, that's you can make certain assumptions about what, what, what data types happen? are possible, what can happen here, could there be an error or not. So take advantage of those things and keep them in mind when you're writing your code and when you're debugging your code and use those to further prune the tree and use those. Uh, and this is really important. We've mentioned this before. When you find a bug, ideally try to fix it by improving the types if possible. If you can prevent the bug in the future through types, do that. Now, that doesn't necessarily have to be your first step in order to get your unit test green. In fact, it likely shouldn't be your first step because you want to do the simplest thing that could possibly work. But swing back around and make sure it doesn't happen again by improving the types if you find a bug related to types. Yeah, there are several ways you can make sure that the problem doesn't happen again, changing the types so that you make impossible states impossible and other things like that. Um, you can write a test, which you probably already did by fi fixing this, if you had a good good test suite. If you didn't, it's a always a reminder that investing your, your test suite is a good thing. And sometimes like the when those don't work out, maybe code generation is a good uh, solution, Elm review rules is a solution. You, you have so many techniques at your disposal um, and you should use the one that is most uh, appropriate, basically probably not Elm review. Um, right, the, the, the closer to the metal you can get, if you can do yeah. it through the Elm compiler, then go for that. If you can't, then keep going Just, down. Yeah. Then code generation, then Elm review. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Try to make it so that it doesn't happen again, because otherwise it will happen again at some point and you will have to do the same debugging you, you just did, or someone else will, Right, even worse. Yeah, basically there's, there's a direct correlation between writing maintainable code and then like the, the techniques you use to write maintainable code are similar to the thought process you use to narrow down your search base when you're debugging. And the more you're doing those techniques to write maintainable code, the more you're able to narrow down your search space when you're debugging and the less you're going to run into bugs in the first place because your your general overall space is more narrow because there are fewer impossible states that can be represented, etc. Well, I think we've covered debugging pretty well. Yeah, not so much about uh, debugging compiler errors in the end. I, I expected more. <laughs> maybe, maybe there could be another episode on the horizon for that topic. That, that sounds good. Let us know what you think. And also, thank you to John Doe, uh, Doe spelled D-O-U-G-H, for, for submitting this question. Uh, we, we neglected to mention in the beginning, this is a, another listener question, and we really appreciate getting these. It's uh, really fun to get, get listener questions. So um, you, can, uh, you can submit a question by going to elm-radio.com slash question. Um, don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and tell a friend if you enjoy the podcast. And uh, until next time, have a good one. Have a good one.